Good evening and welcome to Calvary Chapel. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can hear your voice, that we can know you personally. And that's what we want to know tonight is those things that are honoring to you. We want to know your heart. We want to know your will. And we ask that, Lord, that you would guide us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9. Now, I want to begin with a, really a question. What is the greatest need of man in this life? For some believe it's money. Some believe it's women or a job or a vacation. But the greatest need of man is really forgiveness of his sins. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, really, is Jesus' power over sin. He is able to forgive us, cleanse us, wash us, carry this burden of sin away that, that you and I are no longer under this burden and the power of sin will be set free from that. See, that's what the focus of this text is tonight. In fact, let's read our text through together and then we'll begin looking at it. It's in chapter 9, verse 1. It begins, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and he came to his own city. And they brought him a paralytic lying upon a bed. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. They glorified God who had been given such authority to men. As we begin our text tonight, notice in verse 1, Jesus is getting into the boat. He's crossing over the sea and he's coming to his own city. Well, that city that he's coming to is Capernaum. If you remember, Nazareth is, is where he lived most of his life, but then he moved to Capernaum, which is really kind of the hub or the center, the headquarters for his ministry in the center of Galilee. And it was there in Capernaum that's important to understand. Now, notice with me in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet the land of Zebulun, the land of Nathalie, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who are sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land, and the shadow of death upon them, the light dawned. And that light being Jesus Christ. This was prophesied. He's fulfilling that prophecy. Now, Capernaum was centrally located, as I said. It became that headquarters, the, the center of his ministry. He did so many miracles there, but yet their hearts were hardened. And that's something that you and I need to pray, I believe, daily, and that is that we would always have a teachable spirit. We'd always be open to God. 
We don't come to the Bible with preconceived ideas. We don't go to a theology book and study about God and then come and determine what the Bible says. We come to the Bible and we let God speak to our hearts. And we simply come to him and say, Lord, your servant is listening. Speak. Open up our hearts that we might know you. Now, when we see in verse 2, we see really the condition of this paralytic that he's going to open. He's going to open up his heart. He's going to forgive him of sins. He says again in verse 2, and they brought to him a paralytic lying upon a bed. Now, it's interesting when we start thinking about Again, a person who has this disease, that disease, this thing going on, that thing going on. So often people come to the conclusion, well, there must be sin in their lives. The fact is, we are in a fallen world. Let me read from Genesis 2.17. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat, you will surely die. It was that day that they spiritually died, but they began that process of aging, and physically they began that process of dying. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 through 19, notice what it says. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in your pain you'll bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten from the tree about which you commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it in all the days of your life. Both the thorns and the thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field, but the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, and because of it, it will be taken from dust to dust, you shall return. See, the process of death began in the garden. Ten out of ten do die, except for those that will be at the time of the rapture. The process of decay is beginning. Now, not everyone that is struggling with pain or suffering or hearing or eyesight, really, you can't say there's sin in their life. In fact, let me read in John 9, verses 1 through 3. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man's parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither this man who sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there wasn't sin in that person that caused it. It wasn't the sin of the parents. But God was going to use it to glorify himself, to reveal himself that he has this power to open up the eyes of the blind. Jesus elsewhere insisted that illness is is not necessarily direct consequences to a person's sin. Well, let me show you in Matthew 4, verse 24. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering of various diseases, pains, notice demonics, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. The news went out, and there were different reasons that people had. And some were demonic, evil, 
Maybe they opened the door. Maybe they didn't open the door. But what we know, there's different reasons. Now, this is the same event that happens in Mark 2, also in Luke 5, being kind of parallel verses. But here in Matthew, there's some details that are left out. So we're told that Jesus entered into the house. He began to preach in the room, and there wasn't enough room for everybody that would come. Uh, there was, it was crowded. The, the people were pressing. Not only were they in the house, they were in the courtyard. And here's a man who is ill. He's a paralytic. Desperately needs a touch. His friends, four friends that we're going to see, desperately want to bring them to Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the hope. And as we saw in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was healing all of these people. In fact, in the book of John, it describes at the very end, Jesus did so many miracles, there's not enough books in the world to describe all the things that Jesus did. And that's so important to think about. But here's these four men, desperate to get their friend before Jesus. I think that's encouraging for us. Because there's no place else that anyone in this world can turn to other than Jesus. He is the answer. He is the hope. And if you really love someone, you will bring your friends before Jesus, whether it be in prayer or physically bringing them. And what we see is these men bring him physically. And it's important to understand that they couldn't get in through the house. So what they do is they go in an outside stairwell and they go up to the top and they begin tearing the house apart, the roof, and they're going to lower him through on his bed right there down in front of Jesus. They were desperate. They were bold. Some would say they were even arrogant. To tear the roof up and bring him down there, who do they think they are? And it's interesting, as we watch this scene, we're going to see the eyes of Jesus upon this man and these four men. And Jesus is going to heal him. But Jesus is first going to meet the greatest need, and that is forgiveness of sins. The greatest miracle is the, the forgiving of the sins of that new birth, that regeneration. You cannot have peace in this world until you have forgiveness. When you are saved, when you confess and repent of your sin, Jesus forgives you. You now are reconciled with the Father. You have peace with the Father. And you can have peace in this world. You no longer have this weight, this burden of sin. And many of you probably know that. Of things that you've done in the past that you can't get over. The enemy seems to remind you, or your friends remind you of the past. Maybe they come to you in in dreams, but there's a weight upon you. Many have told me, God can't accept me because of things I've done. God will accept anybody who will humble themselves, who will confess and repent of their sins, and he will give them forgiveness. And that's really what this story's about. Now what we see is these men, I want to go back to them for a second. These are really men of compassion. Again, they're desperate to see their friend again touched, saved, healed. Now they're thinking only physically to walk. What about you? Do you have friends that need a touch of Jesus? 
maybe spiritually, maybe physically. Do you feel this compassion, this, this movement? To get down on your knees and pray for them, to cry out to God, to be persistent. That's what these men were. They're, they're persistent in bringing their friend to Jesus. But sometimes we can be caught up in ourselves, in the world, the things that we've planned, and the world around us suffers. What the world needs is forgiveness. Can you imagine now when they're lowering their friend into this room in a, on a bed and they begin to see the dust and the, the things, the branches begin to fall down and how they're looking up, watching what's going on, hearing people scratching and digging. And Jesus probably had a grin on his face knowing what's going on knowing that only in a few moments these men with this faith and the man himself wanting to come and be before is going to be lowered before him. Grinning. And yet there will be those around him that will be grumbling, murmuring. It's important to understand that as, as Jesus is watching the Pharisees, the doctors of the law, they had come from various cities around in Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. They're watching every move, looking for every word, something wrong to find fault with them. See, when we look again at verse 2, I want to focus on that phrase, see their faith. What they had is a concern, a real concern. And today we're a very selfish world. We don't have concern for our friends like we used to in the, the generation of past. Oh, I know there are some that do. But it's a me world. It's about self. In reality, when, when a person comes to know Jesus, when they're born again and they receive that forgiveness, they begin to turn outward. They begin to esteem others higher than themselves. They're, they're concerned about others experiencing that peace and that forgiveness. Knowing the one that touched them, that changed their life for eternity. Setting them free from the power of sin that was controlling them. That they no longer have to sin. See, this was not only the, the sick man's faith, as he wanted to be before Jesus but was the faith of his true friends. See, that's what true friends do, is they're always going to try and bring their friends to Jesus. I know a guy, he, would, he was bringing his friends to Jesus all the time, and he, if, if they went out and they, they party-hardied, and he would even go and get them early in the morning, throw them in the shower, and then bring them to church. Whatever it took, he would bring them to Jesus. And it was only a matter of time before his friends, one by one, experienced that peace, that forgiveness, that joy of knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him. Mark describes in chapter 2, verse 3, and they came bringing him a paralytic carried by the four. A burden this man was to his friends, to his family, See, the people are concerned. They, it's not a burden to them to carry 
even though it may seem that way to a world, all they wanted was for him to be whole. And Jesus asked the question in John chapter 5, maybe you remember, there's a man laying by the pool, waiting for the turning of the water, and the first one in, as the story would go, would be healed. And Jesus come to him and said, do you want to be whole? And the, and the man said, well, there's no one to put me into the pool. Interestingly, the man was looking to another man. He was busy making excuses. I've known people in life that don't want to be whole. Their identity is maybe in their sickness or illness because people crowd around them, minister to them, and they like being in that place. And the question for you and me is, do we want to be whole? Do we want to be everything that God would have us be? He offers you life, abundant life. He offers you forgiveness if you only confess your sins. If you come to him and repent, he will give you the power. He'll give you the faith. But the the choice is yours. And we, as friends, need to be bringing our friends always before Jesus continually. Now, these four men, they were men of faith. In fact, they stood as great servants, really, of Christ. Because that's what we're called to do, is go and make disciples, to bring people before Christ, teach them what to obey, what to do, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they would identify with God and know Him. They had, again, as I mentioned, a a real concern for their friend. But I think there's one more thing that they had here. They had a desire to see God's glory in their friend. Is that your desire to see God's glory in your friend, your wife, your husband, your children? All we need to do is bring them to Jesus. Bring them in prayer. Bring them to church. Bring them to Bible study. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Now, no way on his own could this man ever get to Jesus. So they're willing to carry him. And they all carried him. And there are times that we need to physically bring, as I mentioned earlier already, people to Jesus. Only Jesus can heal them. So we labor in prayer. Praying for an open heart, a willing heart, a teachable spirit. That they'll acknowledge Jesus and we're persistent in our faith. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to bring our friends to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus saw the faith of these men. In fact, he couldn't miss it. So obvious. I love that. I'll see that from time to time in a person's life that they have faith. Faith in God because God's faithful. They don't squirm. They don't worm. They're just looking for God to do something. They're expecting of God doing something. And that's what these men were. They were expecting. If I only bring him to Jesus, he's able and he's willing. 
Their faith had caused them to persist. In fact, quitting was unthinkable. Sometimes we just quit too soon. In ministry, ministry can be hard for each one of us and wherever God has called us to. If you quit, you're going to miss what God does. So they persisted in reaching Jesus at whatever the cost were. Luke 11, verse 9 and 10 says this, So I say to you, ask. It will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. You're encouraged to keep coming persistent to the Lord and watch what God is going to do. His timing is different than yours and mine. Listen as I read Hebrews 11.6, and without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you seek him in prayer? Do you seek him in the study of the word? I've heard people from time to say, well, I, I, I can't hear God speak. And I say, well, I've never heard God audibly speak to me. But when I'm reading the word, God impresses on my heart so much. I know that he's speaking to me. He's showing me something. He's filling my mind with scripture and connecting the dots. Assuring me that I'm in the right place at the right time. But sadly, we live in a society that's becoming even more and more selfish. The philosophy of really today is me first. Not Jesus. See, Jesus is to be preeminent in our life. God's to be preeminent before all things. When it's convenient, we come to Jesus. When it's convenient, we call her. When we're desperate, we call upon him. But our lives are to center around him instead of our, ourselves. Some people simply do not care about their family or care about their friends. Especially being that they're lost. Psalm 142.4 says this. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I'm going to say if you're here today or listening, someone cares. Someone's prayed for you. Someone has been carrying the burden and bringing you persistently before God and God has opened up your heart. Maybe they physically brought you to church or a Bible study. How important. And, and, and just as they've done that for you, you can do that for someone else. So important. The average Christian today is oftentimes caught up on his work, his, his toys, his hobbies, his sports. These four men obviously had things to do in their life. Their life was as full like you and me. They probably had families and they had jobs, they had home, bills to pay. But bringing their friend to Jesus was the most important thing. Forgiveness, 
is the most important thing. That salvation, knowing that you're forgiven. You know, the Bible teaches us that God wants you to know that you have eternal life and that eternal life is His Son. That when you confess your sins, you repent of your sins, that you have eternal life. The moment that you confess, you're saved. The moment you confess and believe in your heart, profess with your mouth, you're saved. It's done. Past tense. And the process of saving you from the power of sin. And see, this is the very reason Jesus came to save you from your sins. To reconcile you back to God. That's the desire. That's the, this is the main thing. To heal him physically, that's minor. But the greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. The thing that I like here, his friends dropped all their other things that they had to do to bring him to Jesus. Notice again in verse 2, seeing their faith, after seeing their faith, I should say, and Jesus turned and saw it. And look at, look at disgust upon the Pharisee's face. See, all-knowing, he knew their critical thoughts, knowing that they were only looking and waiting for one word, one thought, one action, they could find fault. So they could justify their rejection of him. Cynical, critical, fault-finding. When a person's in that situation, they miss the glory of God. They miss what God is doing. They miss the moment, the miracle. First, that assurance of being forgiven. And the healing, which would be undeniable to them. But God... Though man's heart is hard, but God. See, look again in verse 2. It says, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage. Your sins are forgiven. You don't hear the the men say, well, well, wait a second. We brought him here to, to heal him physically. It's interesting that Jesus always wants to meet the greatest need in a person's life, and the greatest need is, is that forgiveness of sin. And we see, see, this is the compassion of Jesus. Jesus just doesn't want to make people comfortable on the way to hell. No, he wants to, to save them. And then he's going to have them walk and teach them how to walk in a way that will bring glory to the Father and that they will go out and bring others to him. Because Jesus is concerned about the lost. The greatest need of this crippled man was really for his sins to be forgiven. That's why Jesus says. I'm reminded in Matthew 11, you know the passage, verse 28 through 30. It says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. That refers to the burden of sin upon a person's shoulders. All the things they've done in the past. And he says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to lift this burden off us. He wants to teach us how to walk in this life in a way that our head is held high because our identity is in Christ. We know where we're going. We know if we close our eyes in this world, we're going to be with the King. 
because he has power over sin. He has the power to forgive and to take away that power that affects you and me. See, Jesus' words of forgiveness may, may really indicate that this man, uh, again, because of his, his paralysis, was a direct consequence, and it may be in this case. And oftentimes, a, a sickness can be, but not always. And this was the first thing that Jesus did. He forgave the man his sins. Perhaps a man was even thinking about how could God even maybe having these second doubts, maybe how could God forgive me a sinner like me? I've heard people say that. All you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord and he will save you. If you acknowledge him and confess and repent. But note that his friends and the disabled men, they already have faith. That's why they're there. They went to great cost to be there. The man probably very encouraged by his friend's faith. I love it to be around other men and women of faith because I'm encouraged, I'm built up, and I want to take bigger steps of faith. And I want to see them take bigger steps of faith, and I'm sure that was contagious to them as well. Faith is what's necessary for one's sins to be forgiven. Jesus did not tell the man to get up off his bed and walk, but rather take courage. As if this man again had this weight upon him. The unbearableness of this sin, knowing maybe he's in this condition because of the choice he made. His sinful actions. It's evident, though, that the man believed Jesus to be the Messiah. And that's so important that we must believe who God is, who he says he is, and who he reveals himself to be. Not only did he believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he was willing to trust him, to accept him. Not just believe here, but in his heart to put all of his weight if he could. That if he said it, it is is enough. In fact, this is an amazing statement, which draws attention to the fact that Jesus Christ is the one. He is the power, the authority, the compassion to forgive sins when no one else can do that. Only God and God alone. In a way, he's declaring to be God himself. He has the authority and the power to remove the sin. The man was brought to Christ because of his physical infirmity he was paralyzed Jesus not only healed his body but his soul as well our soul is worth so much more look with me in verse 3 we see the critics some of the scribes said to themselves this fellow blasphemes Jesus Christ He has this power to forgive sins. But their question is silently in their heart, as I already mentioned. But Jesus pronounces again the forgiveness. And in their heart, they're saying only God can forgive sins. Not a question, is this God? They ignore the miracles that are being done. They heard the things that were done. That's why they're there to investigate. 
The miracles that they heard about were the very miracles that the Messiah would do. But they already predetermined when they come that they would not accept what they would find fault with. Yet they viewed themselves really uh, uh, the guardians of the Jewish traditions. And they put those traditions we've seen from time to time above the very word of God. They're harsh-hearted, peacock, proud, scribes, miss the glory of God. Today we have the same type of person. Arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees. Looking at everyone when they come in the door. No matter what church they are, trying to find fault with them to make themselves feel better. There's not much difference. John 11, verse 25 through 27 says this, And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone lives, believes in me, and will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Everyone that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the power to forgive sins, to raise the dead, will have eternal life. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. He, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation, and you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We're to go out and bring people to Christ, to to bring Christ to them, to open the word with them, to explain it, to give them the assurance of what God says, to testify who he is. Our lives should reflect Christ. Look with me in verse 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? I've always thought to myself, I'm glad no one knows my heart. Aren't you? This one gal one time, I said, I'm so encouraged. I've never heard you say anything negative about anybody. But she says, you don't know my heart. And we all have that struggle deep inside and here these guys think they're so right and yet they're so far away. See, Jesus is revealing here that really these religious leaders, their attitude, their self-righteous attitude, their evil thinking, their rejection of the Son of God, who was God himself and had that power to forgive sins. They were a stumbling block to all the people around. In fact, in Matthew 12, you'll see the blasphemy, the spirit, where the nation of Israel, that is the religious leaders, reject the Messiah, and Jesus begins to speak in parables, and he speaks to people individually. They were stumbling the people around them. On the other hand, the crowd at least recognize the power being the power of god but but not the the again the scribes the pharisees those religious they because they were full of pride and the hardness of heart they rejected him 
refuse to attribute the, the, any authority or power to him. He knew exactly what they're thinking. Imagine the thoughts that must have run through their heads when they realized that Jesus knew what they're thinking. I like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open, laid bare to the eyes of him who we will have to do. You know, there's a time that everything will be revealed. It's time now to get right with God now. They will not be ashamed when he comes and confess those sins and repent of those sins. They will have times of refreshing. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says this, for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. We know that we'll be at the Bema seat one day. It's really for rewards, but there'll be some loss of rewards. But he offers forgiveness today. He offers a, a cleansing of heart that when we stand before him, we know we'll have the eyes, the heart to know that he's just and he's righteous in all that he says. And we'll be able to receive it maturely. Proverbs 15, 3 says this, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching evil and good. See, nothing surprises the Lord. No matter what is happening in this world, no matter where it is in this world, whether it be in the government, be in a home, and be behind closed doors, God knows all things. There are no secrets when it comes to an omniscient God. Nothing can be hidden from him. He knows all the secret things of our heart. In reality, we should be ashamed. We should confess our sins and repent and be forgiven. Enjoy the time of refreshing. See, God knows everything about you every detail, every experience, every thought, every word, every work, every secret. There's nothing he doesn't know. But he loved you, he loved me so much. He died for you and me while we're in our worst. And he's calling you and me to him every day to spend time with him. Verse 5 goes on, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Christ did something. He healed the man. He had forgiven him. But now he's going to heal the man. This this is proving again the, the deity, the messiahship. Again, a messianic miracle. This is what the messiah would do. This miracle, along with all the other miracles, prove two things. His miracles prove exactly what he was claiming. That he is truly the Messiah, the Son of Man, a favorite term that you find in the, in the book of Matthew, the Son of the living God, and he has the power to forgive sins. His miracles also prove that God does 
care. Think about that. He cared enough that he would send his only begotten son into this world to heal and save the needy and the hopeless. That was me. That was you. See, apart from him, apart from forgiveness, apart from being born again, we were headed to hell. We deserved hell. But he offered life to those that would believe and trust in him. I like what Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we're healed. Now, I don't, I don't believe that this is speaking about a physical healing. It, it may apply in some cases, but I'm talking about really spiritually. Everything he endured, he went through, that you might have life and have it abundantly, that you might have that forgiveness of sin, that hope of eternal life. See, this is a hope the, the world doesn't have until they come to Jesus. Come and acknowledge him. Come and confess and repent of their sin and receive that forgiveness. Jesus simply says in verse 5, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and, and walk. I like the fact that Jesus does not argue with the, the, the scribes, these religious leaders. His purpose was to heal and save the needy. Sometimes we forgot what our mission is all about. He doesn't argue with them about his authority or try and prove his point, his power. He just goes about the Father's business. Just be in the place that God would have you be, doing the things that God would have you do. He revealed by, by what he did, his divine knowledge, his omniscience. And he knew their hearts. And left them baffled, ashamed, and angry at the same time. He revealed his divine power, his omnipotence. Get up and walk. What a lesson for you and me today. He's an all-powerful God. He's still a miracle-working God. And he doesn't always do the miracles when we want them. He knows what the greatest need is. He knows whether he would do this. It might stumble the person. He's going to reach them exactly where they need to be that they would have that abundant life. How we need to cease from all the arguing and begin carrying out the, the real mission that God has called us to do. See, this implied answer, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And then it verifies his work because he has that power over it. He simply says, get up and walk. You and I have a choice each day to obey him. Will we follow him wherever he goes? Will we deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him? Recently, Greg Laurie had on Facebook a, a, a quote I'd like to share. 
They said, it's time for us to wake up as Christians and remember that the gospel is more important than anything. The gospel is more important than our preferences. It's more important than our politics. It's more important than anything else. The gospel is our message to our culture. But look with me in verse 6 and 7. We see the change. But so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth if he gives sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. He got up and he went home. Now I love the word there or the phrase Son of Man. And Jesus' authority on earth if he gives sins is explicit. It's speaking of his divinity that he has this right, who he is, and it's his visible authority. Jesus, the Son of Man, was a humble servant, if you stop and think about it, who came to forgive sins. When he was baptized in the River Jordan, he didn't need to be baptized. That was, a, again, a baptism of repentance. But when he was baptized, he was identifying with sinful man. He came to identify with sinful man. And every sin of yours and mine would be imputed to him when he died upon the cross for you and me. We see him as the suffering servant, as I'm talking about now. His atoning death his resurrection, to show again that death is conquered and that he had the power to redeem sinful man if he'd only come to him, confess and repent, acknowledge him for who he is. Finally, he's the glorious king, but he's also a judge who will establish God's kingdom on this earth one day. Listen to Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Isn't that amazing? He is God, spoke all things in existence. He went to the cross, died for you and me, resurrected. He's going to sit on His glorious throne and, and men would not even acknowledge Him. They spat upon Him. Matthew 26, 64 says this, Jesus said to him, you have said to yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven, coming back in judgment. It will not be until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they mean it with their heart, will he come back. Although the first century Jews, when you stop and think about it, didn't, didn't associate forgiveness, though. Think about this, a, a sin with the Messiah. Isaiah 53 makes it very clear that he would offer a sacrifice that would accomplish atonement for sin. This is the reason he came. To bring into this world the hope, the forgiveness of sin that we could be reconciled to God himself. Matthew eight seventeen says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet that he himself took our infirmities and carried it away 
all of our diseases. And this will happen completely in that millennial kingdom. Verse 7, and it says, and he got up and went home. Well, there was no argument uh, for what they were seeing. Their eyes, they were aware of it. This man came in with, a, a, again, his, his back up on the bed, but when he goes out, the bed's up on his back and he walks out. Undeniable. He once was a burden to all of his friends and loved ones, but now he can go home and he can serve. He can minister to those that minister to him, minister to those that do not even know him because he will be able to tell them who Jesus Christ is. Reality is there will always be critics who witness God, God's work, refuse to, to believe and accept what they see. They refuse because the hardness of their heart. They've determined in their mind, I will not be accountable to him. Time and time again, they attempt to squelch the excitement of a miracle. But they can't do it. The people will not remain silent. What's interesting in the book of Acts, we have a similar account with Peter and John. That is a healing of a lame man. Because of the hardness, the hearts of the religious leaders, they attempted to to silence, again, Peter and John. Let me read in Acts 4, verses 14 and 16. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. They, They were speechless. What could they say? But they wouldn't believe. But when they were ordered to leave the council, referring to Peter and John, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? Noteworthy miracle has taken place that was apparent to all that live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. The Pharisees, the leaders, they couldn't deny it. See, what happens when you cannot deny the truth, when you've seen the hand of God? Time and time, you've seen a changed life. You cannot deny it. A person was alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever it would be, and all of a sudden is cured and walking and serving and and living for the Lord and living for others. You can't deny it. But what they try to do is suppress the truth. This is what Romans talks about in Romans 1, 18 and verse 19. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. They know in their hearts is what it's saying. For God's made it evident to them. What he's saying is every man is without excuse. The question is, do you want to believe? Do you really want to know the truth that will set you free? I've had people knock on my door bringing another gospel, which is not a gospel at all. And I'll say, I'll listen to you. Will you listen to what I have to say? If I can show you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he was God in the flesh, and he died, he was raised from the grave, would you believe? No, I will not believe. It's the end of the conversation. Some people will choose not to believe even if they know it's true. They have to suppress the truth in their own hearts. 
And the more they harden their heart, the harder it becomes. What's amazing is in, in Matthew 10, verse 1, notice what it says. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So they would go out in his authority and this would point back to him. This is the purpose of these miracles is to testify they went in the power of Jesus Christ. Again, the miracles of the Messiah, the signs of the Messiah. But notice what they didn't get a chance to do. Forgive people of their sins. Only God can forgive a person of their sins. And if you have not been forgiven, if you've not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is your greatest need tonight. Our final verse is verse 8. What we see is really the consequences of all this as it comes together. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to these men. It's interesting, the word awestruck comes from a Greek word. It just seems to, to, to wonder, to marvel. To glorify God is the idea here. Astonishment. Modern vernacular, blown away. It's amazing, these, these people who witnessed this great event never saw such a display of power before. In Mark, we see the same thing, chapter 2, verse 12. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet, went out of sight of everyone, and they were amazed and they were glorifying God And we've never seen anything like it. What kind of God is your God? I think one of the things that the church has lost is this amazement and love for Jesus Christ. He's an amazing God. And he has an amazing hand upon your life and my life. And he's directing us and he's bringing us home one day. There's two things. To stir us up as believers to glorify God. First is that demonstration of God's power. A look around the life, look at his creation. You see the power of God. The heavens declare the glory of God night by night. The salvation of the people whose sins are truly forgiven when a person can walk and know that God has forgiven them. Just as God said, I've separated your sins as far as the east is from the west. He's choosing never to remember. When you know that, there is peace in your heart. There's two things that should stir unbelievers to glorify God. The fact that the Messiah really has come. In fact, in John 3, 16 and 17, notice what it says. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He is the savior of the world if someone would just call upon his name and they will be saved. The fact that unbelievers can be forgiven of their sins, that alone 
is amazing. That they can be saved, the given and saved. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he is always lives to make a set intercession for them. When you draw near to God, he draws near to you. You can boldly go to the throne of grace when you confess your sins. You repent and confess. You can come to him 24 hours a day. But there's also some warnings to be concerned about. Sadly, a person can glorify God and still not be saved. The multitudes that follow Jesus, you would hear them glorify God, but their own lives, their own sins were not covered and forgiven. Many would praise him on that day as he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and a few days later would curse him. A person can marvel at Christ, be amazed at Christ. Gandhi was amazed at Christ, loved the teaching of Christ, but didn't like Christians because they weren't like Christ. A person, again, can marvel at Christ, but fail to believe in Christ is truly the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah. John 3.16, as I mentioned already, and I'm going to read through verse 18, is I'm going to finish with this verse here. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. And he who believes in him is not judged. And he who does not believe in him has been judged already because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten son of God. Our prayer at Calvary Chapel is if you've never believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, tonight is the night of salvation. All you need to do is call upon his name. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Know that you need to cry out for that forgiveness and repent of your sins and receive a new life and he will come into you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we can be assured of our forgiveness that we can have peace, peace with you, reconciled to you. You're on the throne because, Lord, you're concerned. You're full of compassion. You care. You're coming again, and we know you're coming soon, and, Lord, we long for that, not an escapism, but simply to be with you, to be in your presence, just as a a bride longs to be with her groom and a groom with the bride. We say, come now, Lord Jesus. 